One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, looking at the situation in Kherson and the East. We also welcome the Telegraph's technology correspondent and examine developments from the cyber war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Where Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 15th of August, day 173. And today, I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and technology correspondent, Gareth Caulfield. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Sounds very dramatic. I hope you're still there, David. I'm fallen under some heavy furniture. Uh, the main things over the weekend were the continued moves in the south, around the Kazan region. So this is the area that we've been looking at for, for quite a while, the, the supposed um, series of counterattacks there from Ukraine, which have yet to knit together into a much larger counteroffensive for which you need the full the full orchestra and you know, all the bells and whistles and uh, and 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 have planned it you know, to a very high high degree. So the counterattacks we've seen we think have been uh, limited, looking for opportunities, uh, looking to to test Russian Russian lines, Russian strengths. Um, of course, all the time this has been going on, there, there's been the continued long range artillery battles with the Ukrainians using using the uh, multiple launch rocket systems and HIMARS that the West have been sending in to to degrade Russian artillery. And it's thought that in the east, the, the Russian artillery is down to about a half or possibly even a third of what it has been. So from, from 12 to 15,000 shells a day, that's now down to five to 6,000. So, you know, still a huge amount of ordnance being thrown around, but very, very much down on, on what it has been. And that's partly because they're not there anymore. They've been targeted by HIMARS, but also partly because Russia have been making this move to, to the south to reinforce the Kherson, uh, Kherson region. Now, interestingly, so the Kherson is the only provincial, uh, only regional town, uh, city, sorry, to have been taken, only regional capital to have been taken by Russia. Um, and the Russian forces are north and west of the Dnieper River, Dnieper River at that point. And so it creates a, a bit of a bottleneck. And we've we've been watching 
Ukraine um, target this, nibble away at the edges. And we saw that long range strike into the the Saki Air Base in Crimea last week, which we think is all, all part of this. But interesting, what we've seen is uh, over the weekend on Saturday night, a number of bridges uh, across uh, the Dnipro River into the, the area, um, like I say, to the north and west, where Russia has a number of large number of forces were targeted again. Um, the British MOD made a statement, uh, in defence intelligence statement over the weekend, saying that uh, the two main road bridges across to this area were, and this is quote, probably out of use for purposes of substantial military resupply. So, again, not utterly impassable, not impassable to civilian traffic, importantly, but probably not a viable route for the very heavy stuff. Russia now seem to be, they've, they've constructed two pontoon bridges to get across the river, um, which, which will take, so it's nothing like as efficient, obviously, as if you've got a road or rail link. So there's, there's, there's significant strain being placed upon the Russian lines. There's reports that the... Uh, the Russian military headquarters for the region has moved south, has moved across the river back to, if you think of it from Russia's point of view, um, back, back to their, what they would consider their home bank. I mean, this is not home to them. This is still in Russian-occupied Ukraine, but they would consider that the, the safer bank. Um, moving your headquarters is it makes military sense if you're under under great stress, but, you know, it's not a great morale winner when you see... When you see your headquarters move, I mean, no one wants to be too close to the headquarters. They have a habit of sort of disappearing in the middle of the night, high Mars o'clock. But, you know, it's never a good thing to see these these people moving away from you. Um, so, but that, so that is interesting. I think it's also very interesting that the way that Ukraine are doing this. Now, we've we've talked before about how Ukraine from day one of this war have have tried to fight a different way. They could not match Russia um, if in a toe to toe slugging match. So what they've done is 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 be more canny about it. We've spoken in the past about the the Western doctrine of the manoeuvrist approach, which is not is not just movement. It's not just moving your stuff around and coming up from an unexpected angle. That is part of it. But the manoeuvrist approach is, uh, suggests a, a nimbleness of thought and a, an ability to to do the unexpected and and um, uh, and and be able to fight. A much larger force with a smaller, smaller force of your own. That seems to be what's happening here. So, so just very briefly, because I know we're still still only on the opening bits of the news. But you know, if you think about a military force that is that is the um, very very basically the sort of the, the the fighting bits and and the supply bits. Now, of course, the supply bits have to do fight, fighting themselves. Um, but let's just let's just think of it in terms of the, the fighting bits and the supply bits. Now, in the opening weeks of the war, Ukraine were very clever and, and, and it takes great confidence to not go after the company of T-72 tanks, the, the 10 or 11 tanks there, but rather to strike the logistic tail behind them, the fuel and the, um, uh, the, the fuel and water for the for the fighters and the uh, the fuel for the for the vehicles and the ammunition, what have you. I mean, that takes great great confidence, great great courage, great calmness of thought to do that. But you can target the the fighty bits and you can target the logistic bits. What Ukraine seems to be doing here um, is 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 neither of those two things. What they've done is they're not allowing those two parts, those two elements of the of Russia's military force, to link up because they have to. Of course, the, the supply bits have to get. The ammunition forward and the fuel, oil, lubricants for the vehicles, the the, the um, you know rations and water for the fighters. You've got to get that forward. So so you don't have to 
you don't have to take on those bits. You don't have to take on the, the human bits. You can sever the link between them. So what Ukraine seems to be doing is very cleverly not taking on the might of the Russian army. There's the still numbers, I mean, thousands of people in, in that region. And, and we think Ukraine are suffering after, after months at war. They need a break as well. But what they are trying to do, seemingly, is to sever that link. And in this region, that means dropping the bridges between um, over the Dnipro River, so between the sort of Kurzon, in the Kurzon Oblast, to, um, uh, to basically to seal off those Russians north of the river. And it seems to be reasonably successful. Um, we will have to watch it because, like I say, Russia have they've built these pontoon bridges. They can still move across. The, the command headquarters has moved back south, so they've not not yet been able to um, to strike that and and uh, deny the Russians the leadership element. But it does seem to be a very very clever way of not meeting strength with what little strength you have, but severing those links, those all important links between the two. Um, and this should not have come as a surprise to Russia. Um, I mean, it's in the history, right? It's Stalingrad, kind of all over again, with the German Sixth Army being being surrounded and cut off, and and then slowly, slowly uh, nibbled away out until it until it had to uh, had to give up. So, I mean, they should have seen this coming. They should have planned for it, um, and and they're now they're now extremely vulnerable. It's, it's by no means ready, I don't think, for this larger counteroffensive. But this is a very very significant move if Ukraine have been able to to sever that link between those north and west of the river and those south and east trying to resupply them. We will have to um, have to watch out over the next few weeks, but I think that is that is quite significant. I'll take a little pause there, but a um, bit, bit more news to come. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'm not going to let you pause, actually. I've got a couple of questions just based on um, what you've said. Thank you very much for that. That was extremely comprehensive. Um, just in Herzon, I mean, how perilous do you think the position of the troops on the far side of the river, the Russian troops closest to Ukrainian forces, how perilous is their position now, considering they're only relying, they can only rely on pontoon bridges, which are under attack almost nightly. All this into context, and the, the events of the last week, supporters of Ukraine, how how much how, how hopeful should they be over from what they've seen from last week, from the strike in Crimea to uh, the events of the last few days? Um, is 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 this really? Do we do we think that potentially that the, the war is is turning course now, or or is it too too early to say that? Right. Well, it's too early to say, first of all. I mean, we shouldn't be looking for this is a turning point in the war anymore that um, that you know, certain elements of the media are not absolving us there of, of anything. And this like to suggest that there are certain weapons that will be upon which the whole war will hinge. I mean, it doesn't. War doesn't really work like that. Um, so, so no, this, I don't think this is going to be a, a significant turning point. This will throw up a whole a number of thoughts i.e. how how important is that southern corridor to putin if ukraine are able to push back and take the city of kazan and in so doing either either um destroy a load of russian the russian forces there the thousands of russian soldiers north and west of the river or force them into a into a major retreat if either of those two things happen that will be very very significant um for both sides significant for ukraine because it's a huge swathe of territory they'll take back and and um a very symbolically important piece of piece of territory also important for ukraine strategically in terms of shoring up the international support for this war there's long been chat that um as surprising as it was as, as welcome as it was ukraine just just surviving is is now is now no longer good enough ukraine needs to demonstrate some kind of ability to push back 
against Russia in order for some of the the more wavering elements of it, of the international community to not say, oh, my God, this is just going to go on forever. We need to sue for peace early. We, we just need to, everyone needs to move on. I mean, I don't subscribe to that idea, but those thoughts are are out there. Um, and so the idea is that, that Ukraine needs to demonstrate that not only can they hold on, but they can win this thing. And that needs to happen probably before the fighting season really grinds down to a to, to much slower rate in the winter, um, before the winter throws up those challenges for for the Western energy. So there is a, there is a thought that, that Ukraine needs to do something now. So it will be operationally significant if they were able to do this, but I don't think it would be a, a, a turning point in the war. There's still a very, very long way to go. In terms of what this means for Russia, it depends if they can if they can preserve their combat power, which means, you know, sort of getting out of there. If they are, if they are not able to look after themselves, not able to defend themselves and, and push forwards, if they are not able to, if they're not pr- protected sufficiently that they um, are safe from overhead fire, aerial fire, artillery, air, loitering munitions, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, then they need to, they need to get out. So preserving combat power is, is good. I mean, we spoke before about when, remember when Severodonetsk um, fell and Lysychansk, and Ukraine managed to get the vast majority of its forces out. We were talking uh, in terms of comparing it to Dunkirk, and and you know it's good to be able to preserve your fighting power for another day. But uh, as we said at the time, uh, Churchill then said, um, "Victories are not born of of glorious retreats." So you know going backwards is not really what you want to be doing as a military force. But if you go backwards in order to preserve your fighting power and come back another day, that that is that is better than just standing and fighting for the sake of it and, and losing everything. So it kind of depends what, what Russia wants to do and what they're able to do. Um, now, it looks like the command elements have got over the river uh, back to the, the relative sanctuary of the southern bank, um, the left bank as you... So you, you talk about the a river in terms of the way the water is flowing, so the water flows out to the, out to the Black Sea. So the left bank, the south bank... Russia's bank looks like the command element have got over there intact and um, successful, and that is no mean feat. You know, you've got to got to think about how you command whilst on the move. It, it is no easy task um, to do a, what's called a either a forward or in this case a rearward passage of lines to move back through your own lines and still maintain efficient control. So they've they've achieved that. That was um, you know a fairly slick military operation. So the command element's still there. Now, whether they are they are able to enact a um, either a defence of where they are or or a, a withdrawal, and whether they're allowed to politically, the, these questions are still up for grabs. But no, we absolutely cannot write off this this force, this Russian force yet, um, and we certainly can't say that this is any any great moment, any turning point in the war just yet. This is it's far too early to say that. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Uh, Gareth, I realise you can't stay with us that long, so I'd like to bring you in here. Last time we spoke um, was a few months ago now on how you saw the cyber war element in this conflict change uh, and, and what was going on there. What updates do you have for us? So in terms of developments in the cyber war, I think the, the main theme we've been seeing, um, sort of a slightly detached position here in the West, is that things have calmed down a bit. Now, a few months ago, we were we were looking at the prospect of outright cyber warfare. We were looking at all of the uh, rumoured capabilities of Russia's um, 
intelligence agencies and their hacking capabilities being turned against Ukraine. And a lot of analysts were predicting we were going to see the, uh, yeah, the, the finally this would be the first major cyber war. And without knocking the fact that the Ukrainians undoubtedly will see it that way and have experienced it that way, I do think what we've seen is that actually the cyber war is starting to calm down a bit. So the highest profile incident we've had to date was when the what they call the Indestroyer malware, uh, which was a cyber attack against a power station. Uh, that, mal- that particular malware, a particular strain of malicious software, was specifically developed for that attack um, and was deployed against a power station. Now, the Ukrainians and their Western allies caught that just in the nick of time, and it was a very good thing they did so, otherwise that would genuinely have caused some fairly widespread an easy-to-imagine effect in terms of power blackouts and availability of electricity generation. But since the destroyer malware, what we've actually seen is that things have wound themselves back a bit, or rather the Russians have wound themselves back a bit. So instead of looking at large set-piece, high-profile, high-impact attacks, we're now seeing more of a focus on lower-level strains of malware, lower-level attempts to infect and compromise Ukrainians' work devices, email accounts, online presences in in whatever form on social media and professional networking media sites and so on. So something Viktor Zora, who is the Ukrainian sort of lead cybersecurity official, said at the Black Hat conference last week, which is a a big hacker convention in in the US, uh, he said that so far the Ukrainians have tracked 1,600 major cyber incidents. Now, he didn't elaborate on that figure, so we, we, we don't quite know whether that means it's similar things to Indestroyer or whether it's what we've seen more of, which is the so-called wiper malware. Now, the wiper malware is, is equivalent to dropping a bomb, basically. You, just, you get this malware onto a target device through whatever means available. You know, you, maybe you send them a phishing email, you maybe send the victim some sort of really enticing thing that they desperately want to click on, and when they click on it, it opens the malicious software and it runs and does its damage. Now, that's interesting because the wiper malware is, is a scorched earth weapon. It destroys everything on the um, on the target device that it hits. So if you install it on your work computer, for example, if you're unlucky and get hit in that way, uh, that wipes not only your machine, but potentially the machine of your employer, your company, or the state agency for which you work, which is one of the reasons that the Russians are very keen on that. Um, but what we tell, I think... I've got the figures in front of me here. I think it was Cisco Talos who pointed out that they've seen a six-fold rise in worldwide detections of wiper mal- new wiper malware strains uh, since the, the outbreak of the Ukrainian war. And they contrast that and say, say that previously they were finding maybe one, one or two strains a year in the decade uh, leading up to this. So we're definitely seeing a, a sort of a lower level but potentially much more destructive albeit less visible, uh, form of Russian cyber attack going on now in the, in the, uh, the last few months. And just for, um, for people, for outsiders from this industry like me, what do you make of the fact that there are more lower level um, uh, att- attempts? Is it, is it easier to do that? Is that why are the, are the big sort of big set piece events like hacking a power station or something, are they, are they a lot more difficult? Um, wh- why do you think the Russians have, have altered their tactics? Yes, the the big high-profile tactics tend to generate big high-profile responses. So in the wake of the Indestroyer malware attempt against the power station, what we saw was a lot of very very high-profile attempts by the West and the Ukrainians to respond to that, detailing the malware, exactly how it worked, you know, here are the weak points, these are the bits that if you're defending against this sort of thing, you need to watch out for. All that kind of really useful industry-facing advice that says we've seen something big and unusual, you need to 
targets, so you, know, you need to take appropriate precautions. Now, winding that down to this this kind of wiper malware, this lower level threat, I think that's, that tells us that it needs less in the way of resources from the Russians to deploy. It uses um, you know, methods of malware distribution that are well understood within Russia uh, and indeed the wider world, you know, simply sending phishing emails or targeting people's social media accounts with direct messages saying, oh, I've seen this, you have to click on it. Uh, so it's a much lower effort to deploy those. It's well within the reach of people you know, like you and I, frankly, who have sort of average skills. We can be sat in front of a computer and told, right, click here, send that message, target that person. It's straightforward. It's simple. It can be done with a minimum of resource. Um, so, yeah, that's I think that's what we're seeing there is a sort of desire to sort of wind things down a bit, but also to sort of tie those into where the, the conventional Russian forces are operating. So there have been rumours that these um, wiper malware incidents have been correlated with attacks on the ground by the conventional forces Don was speaking about. So, for example, we might see a wave of um, wiper malware incidents um, that sort of track at the same or occur or are visible at the same time as a Russian military push into a certain area. So the thinking there is that this is an attempt to sort of sow confusion and doubt and paralyze the ability of the Ukrainians, uh, civil and military uh, institutions to respond to you know, local situations as they develop. Could you just colour that in for us a little bit? What would that look like on the ground if, if a Ukrainian unit was, or, or a section of the armed forces was coming under that sort of assault? So what we would see is the ability of the Ukrainians as a command and control um, to being, de- you know, to use a military term, being degraded. So you would see commanders sort of slowing down. You see the, the critical IT systems they rely on to harvest and disseminate information to make command decisions sort of becoming unavailable to them. It would have the same effect as dropping a physical bomb on an HQ. But the difference, of course, is that all the HQ personnel are there, but instead of you know, dealing with casualties or whatever, they're sitting there swearing at the IT and cursing whoever it is who deployed this terrible thing against them. So it is that sort of... It, it introduces that paralysis. It also you know, has that problem... It causes that problem for the civilian authorities, their ability to mobilise uh, resources to deal with, with the aftermath of bombing attacks, to dispatch ambulances, to you know, care for the civilian population in the way that they obviously need to. So while it's, it's less higher profile in the West, from our point of view, certainly it has a, a big destructive effect, which we just simply you know, may be overlooking now, I think. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gareth. Uh, Dom, you've been listening to that. Do you have any questions for Gareth, or shall we move on and talk about the Wagner Group? Oh, no, I've just got one, if I, if I may. Um, hi, Gareth. Great, great, to, uh, great to have you on again. Could, uh, we've, now we're at, we've been watching this for six months. Will you be able to give us a sort of high-level view of how you see the um, the electronic warfare uh, capabilities and sort of hacking capabilities of of Russia, both from the military side of it and the and from the state side, because before the war we saw some all the troll farms and the, the Internet Research Agency and what have you up in St Petersburg. There's been a fairly steady drip feed over the last few years of um, of really quite quite subtle comms there and misinformation, um, and yet then when there's the big the big green push. There's not been the the, um, the sort of comparable effect on the battlefield. I wonder if they are if they are not sufficiently well knitted together, or, or am I just hoping for, for much greater coherence where there is none? Yeah, that's puzzled a lot of Western analysts as well. That question about that sort of integration between the electronic warfare, stroke hacking capabilities, and the conventional offensives. Um, 
you know, a lot of thinking on, on our side of the fence was very, you know, on the Western side of the fence, I should say, was very much along the lines of, well, Russia's been perfecting its hacking capabilities for years. Now this is going to be its ultimate test. And I think in general, with the exception of the Industroy and Industroy 2 malware incidents, that what we were actually seeing there was a, uh, a bit of a disappointing, you know, damp squib effort from Russia. That's not to underplay what they have achieved, which has been sort of quietly devastating in its own way. But we haven't seen uh, that sort of what many expected to see, which was that cyber capabilities, electronic warfare capabilities will be able to paralyze the state on its own. And if you're drawing a historical comparison, I suppose you could look back to the 1940s with Bomber Harris and RAF Bomber Command targeting Germany. Bomber Harris, the the CO of Bomber Command, uh, officer in command there. Uh, was was absolutely convinced that his bombers and his bombers alone would be the way to win the war against Germany, and that all these other people in the army who were saying we need to invade them and depose Hitler and all this uh, were, were completely wrong in his view. And of course, history turned out to say that that view was mistaken. And I suspect that those in the cyber analysis community who were predicting at the you know, back in February and March that we would see cyber capabilities used to degrade Ukraine's ability to wage war without firing a shot may have been mistaken in that regard. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gareth, for that. I know you have to head off, but that was extremely interesting. And do come back soon. Uh, Dominic Nichols, um, in your notes beforehand, you, you mentioned you wanted to speak a little bit about the Wagner Group. Um, please please tell us, what have you learned? Yeah, so this, this came out over the weekend as well. The Wagner Group, this group of um, alleged Russian Russian mercenaries active in Ukraine, Syria, across uh, swathes of Africa, Venezuela, etc., etc. Um, they have been operating in in Ukraine uh, during this invasion. We think they were a large slice of the little, little green men in the 2014 invasion. But they supposedly had a headquarters set up, or a, a large headquarters element set up in Popasna, which is about 20k south of Severodonetsk over the weekend. There were photos. I've not, I've not been able to see if they were geotagged, uh, or rather in time, to, to this location. But there were uh, photos of... Um, Supposedly, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man who is thought to be the um, the, the main financier uh, of the Wagner Group, he's, he's known as Putin's chef. He's a restaurateur. He's got a number of lucrative sort of Kremlin catering contracts. He's from St. Petersburg. knows um, knows Putin of old, and because of his catering links, and he was he was filmed very sort of flamboyantly delivering a dish of food to Putin once. He's known as Putin's chef. Um, Yevgeny Prigozhin is was thought to have been at this location. Um, we don't know if he was there over the weekend when, uh, again, it's been geolocated that this location was hit by something, either high miles or we're not sure what. But the the supposed location of the Wagner Group headquarters in the Papagena area was, was destroyed. And it's being suggested that that was because of a number of posts that, that the fighters themselves had put out on, on their own social media channels. It was then, um, you know, open source intelligence and... And I guess I guess Ukrainian military had, had, had worked it out and um, geolocated it and then and called in a fire a fire a, a fire mission on that. So that is that is interesting in and of itself. If that is the headquarters of the Wagner Group that's that's been destroyed, that's very interesting. If Yevgeny Prigozhin is in any way um, injured or or killed in that, um, we'll need to keep a close eye on that. It just it does for me throw a bit of a bit of interest on on the use of open source intelligence and um and i i got a bit of criticism i got a got an email over the over the weekend from someone who said that uh that i'm giving away too much too much in, in intelligence and the the russians don't need to 
don't need to do anything. They should just read the Telegraph. I mean, it's, it's almost a byline the editor would want to put on the top of the paper. I, I doubt it. But he's saying that, you know, the Russians don't need the, their own intelligence. They just listen to you, read your stuff. Um, and you, Ukraine would, I think it was something like Ukraine would lock you up. Anyway, made me think, made me examine my own conscience again. And I'm I'm happy that I'm on the, on the right side of this. Um, I mean, you know, Mike, you're right. Intelligence is information plus assessment. I am getting information um, from open sources, same as you know, everyone else can. I'm talking to senior military and political leaders, foreign foreign ministers, defence ministers, the occasional prime minister, president, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm comparing their answers with the answers I, I get from, or two similar questions from other people. Uh, that that there's all little bits of the jigsaw. I then stand back and I look at the jigsaw and I make my analysis. Now this is this is just my analysis. This right. This is from the mind of March. This is Dom speaking. This is not. I don't get any. I don't get sight of anything um, from from the from the military here or the government here that I'm that I'm then sort of passing on to you guys. This is open source stuff. I've just done my own thinking based on you know, a military background and a little bit of a little bit of thinking and asking asking questions. You know, this is this is open source. This is not. There is no, you know, TS strap to telegraph intelligence. Um, you know, I'm not giving away anything here. I don't think the editors would would know what that was. If, if I, I mean, I, look, I can't badmouth the editors. They still haven't signed off my Denmark expenses. But, you know, I, so I'm not giving away intelligence. I don't think I am. If anyone thinks differently, my DMs are open. Feel free to message me if you think I've got it completely wrong. And I'm I'm the, the, the ideas I come out with here are in the same league as as what seems to have happened to the Wagner group over the weekend then let me know if I'm going too far then I'll shut up but I'm I'm I think I'm I'm safe on this I ask people who I trust am I the right side of the line and so far everyone's saying yes um but you know let let me know but I think if this is correct if the Wagner group has been hit because they've been putting out information on Russian media and on social media that is that is a, a glaring error of operational security and um and they've been punished accordingly well, thank you very much for that, Dom. And as Dom says, do get in touch. I would be very interested to hear your thoughts and your questions. I'm delighted to be joined by Francis Sternley, our assistant comment editor. Francis, you've been listening to this podcast. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on what Gareth and Dom has ha- have had to say over the past about the past few days? Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, sorry that I'm late. Just had a, a meeting here at the Telegraph that perhaps I'll be able to talk about um, another another time. Um, yes, it's it's been an interesting few days, hasn't it? Um, something that I've been pondering over the weekend and reading some reading some analysis about is a theme that we were talking about last week at length, but perhaps in in less of a sort of detailed way, which is about this possibility of the significance of not only the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, but also more broadly about Putin's grand strategy strategy for the next few weeks, months and and possibly the winter. I'm reading some interesting sources that might be suggesting that there is now a very strong likelihood that Putin will try and declare some sort of ceasefire prior to winter and essentially in doing so seek to uh, arrange some sort of peace deal whereby he can keep those areas of the Donbass he currently has and Crimea and essentially say you know appear magnanimous and say look we, we don't want to risk there being some sort of nuclear escalation we, we want to be able to resume uh, oil and gas at the very moment when uh, it really starts to bite uh, for um, 
for Europe and essentially cut his losses and uh, and reopen ties economic and diplomatic with the West. And so I think we need to be very sensitive to this as as a possibility now, um, because no doubt, as we've spoken about many, many times, there are certain countries in Europe that I think would be open to such an offer. Uh, indeed, I, I think we well, we don't need to name them, but I think there are obvious candidates for regular listeners of this podcast. And indeed, who knows, maybe even countries we don't expect if things get incredibly severe. I mean, something that I think we have to be sensitive to uh, is that there are now many new leaders set to take over in countries in Europe if they've not already done so, um, or leaders who are currently in power who are now severely weakened. I mean, look at Olaf Scholz. He's under under fire in Germany. Uh, Macron, of course, has lost his parliamentary majority. Boris is about to be uh, no longer prime minister here in Britain, and that will be replaced either by Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. They are, and they are going to be inheriting a, a very, very challenging situation on many, many fronts, not only in terms of energy, um, uh, not only in terms of economics, but just generally speaking, uh, this is now a very challenging uh, global marketplace. And so um, I think we just need to be sensitive to the fact that they're, for all of the talk of resolve it may well be the case that there will be people who will find an offer of a ceasefire from Putin very, very attractive. But what are the dangers of that? Well, of course, for all of the reasons that we've talked about, which is that if Putin is able to hold on to any of the territory that he's accumulated from this war, then you could argue that essentially he has he has won not initially what he sought to achieve, which was, of course, obviously the seizure of the entirety of Ukraine. But he has fundamentally rebuilt uh, the, the premise that might is right. You know, it used to be the case that you couldn't get away with this kind of stuff. But he would be showing the world that actually, if you're if, if, if as long as you've got a long term strategy and you can outpace the West, then you could succeed. So, of course, that's one of the huge risks from the Ukraine perspective. As I talked about last week, the danger is, of course, that he's able to hold on to Crimea or those parts of the Donbass, that he will then resume hostility hostilities again at some juncture when things are more favourable to him. Um, That is, of course, a risk. There is also another side of the argument on that, which is that actually there wouldn't be a resumption of hostilities in Ukraine because whatever the peace route deal that would be signed, whatever the ceasefire would be, uh, would be one that... uh, um, that would ensure that there couldn't be a flare-up. You know, there would be guarantees militarily from Britain, Turkey, that, that, that if there was another invasion of Ukraine, that, that Russia would not be able to um, to do anything. But of course, the other uh, the other final point on this um, is, of course, that it should all be down to what Ukraine wants. It shouldn't be something that can be negotiated away. Not with this many, not with these many atrocities on Ukrainian soil. Not when it's their in sovereignty that's been impeded. This shouldn't be a conversation that's 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 had in dark rooms between great powers. Which, of course, is what, as I've talked about in the past, would be the sort of Davos solution. This should be something that, that if Ukraine want to keep fighting, they should be able to do so um, for, for, for all of the reasons about what we've talked about in terms of what's at stake here. So, as I say, I think this is something that we need to be talking about because the last thing we can afford, I think, in the West now is for Putin to once again... Uh, be thinking two or three moves ahead and 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 surprise the world so that they're not prepared and then you'll have all of a sudden the usual suspects piping up and saying we should be taking this offer and I don't think they will be thinking that through if that is indeed what they are saying and what they seek to agree to. And that's certainly the Ukrainian position, isn't it? That a, a bad peace now means more war later. Uh, Dom Nichols, I believe you've got a question for Francis. Yeah, hi Francis. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on where the what fora there are that are, that are really. Um, coming to the coming to the front of the, of the war here, we've we've seen the the UN 
uh, try and act. Um, we've also you mentioned the sort of Davos community there, but I, I just wonder what what groupings are are emerging that do carry weight and where we should pay attention to to see what the messages are coming out of there, or, or is it still just the the central government edicts from some of the, the great the great powers of Europe, so to speak? Well, I think at the moment it's not all coherent, and there's obviously a lot of conversations taking place in the UN, and uh, and and but also I think you have to say that there are really so much of the decisions that have been being made are by individual powers, individual leaders, um, and uh, whether that be Schultz or Macron or um, Boris Johnson here in Britain, and and of course there's a strength in that because certain decisions made by say Boris Johnson helped arguably save Kiev in those. Early Early days of the war. And so in that sense, it's a strength, but also this a weakness too, that when you have decisions that are being made by individuals, um, the, the, and it's not sort of an institutional desire to necessarily save save Ukraine, you know that it's actually a, a decision made by one person, I'm not necessarily saying that's the case in Britain, I think regardless of who would have been Prime Minister, um, that, that there would have been a very robust response from Britain. But let's say, let's take the case of, of, um, of, of, of France, Macron's been pretty strong on this, um, weak on other elements of it. But if you had a different leader there, who knows what may have happened um, back in February and in the month since. So what I'm saying is that there is a real danger here that um, if you don't have that, if it's all reliance on one leader and relationships that are taking place behind closed doors, all you need is for one new leader to come in who who shakes things up and says, well, actually, I don't want to do this. I don't want to continue the support of Ukraine. And then things are in trouble. And I think there are certain trends that we can see happening in Europe that are steering slightly more towards that direction in more recent elections. Look at what's happened in Italy, for instance, where a much further right, more sort of pro-Putin or at least sympathetic to Putin power um, are now on the threshold of power. Um, there's also, as I say, been shifts obviously in Central Europe as well that we've seen since the war began. So I'm um, not sure if that specifically answers your, your question, Dong, because it was a little bit crackly. Um, but this, this sort of question around international organisations making decisions, individual leaders, is a really interesting one. And we spoke so much in the early on about sort of the, the European Union's handling of this and perhaps, perhaps they were too slow um, to respond and it was actually individual leaders who basically took the took the impetus but i think that conversation now about about institutional support for ukraine versus individual leader support is now more relevant than ever yeah sorry maybe I, the, the the question was a bit bit crackly but, but I, so i suppose i wonder if how important you think momentum is here so we've got the ramstein process the us led ramstein process of military aid to ukraine then you've got the the process that such as I was at last week in Denmark with the the, the British Defence Secretary. This this other process that's that's hard military aid. But it's also training and money. And there's a steady drumbeat of these things. They try that. It's almost as if they're trying to get into a sort of fortnightly battle rhythm, if you like, if I can use that expression here, because the next one of the of the sort of UK led series of of meetings is going to be in mid September. Um, so you know, not far, not far away. So I just wonder if, if in order to keep the momentum going amongst like-minded nations, these groups are going to meet more regularly, and they are almost challenging some of the other countries. So at these events, they they talk about the the fantastic offers that have been put on the table by country X, country Y, and country Z, and it's then very difficult, I suppose, for countries X, Y, and Z to come back and go, oh no, no, actually, we didn't mean to send fifteen; we were only going to send seven, and they don't actually work, or or what have you. So I just wonder if, if how important you see momentum amongst the the groups that these ad hoc groups that have come together, largely under the Ramstein process, uh, but but are now 
are now settling down into into a rhythm and are meeting and are talking and are are, are, are being able to refer to earlier decisions and they've now got a, a little bit of um, a little bit of history to them. If that is generating a momentum all of its own. I think almost certainly. Uh, I think that when you have a sort of institutional institutional meeting such as that happening regularly, then no doubt the relationships that will be being forged at those meetings will have an influence on the conversations that are taking place, the tone of them. It sort of confirms the solidity of opinion and and everything else. So I think that that obviously will build momentum in a way that is um, favourable. Although on the the other hand, as I say, because power now has become so centralised, I would argue, within um, within European powers, not only within sort of bureaucratic structures, um, supranationals, etc., but also within um, governments. Just look at how much more powerful, say, Number Ten Downing Street is now than it was twenty or thirty years ago. Um, that there is, as I say, always this this other danger that, however much maybe diplomats are meeting, senior ministers, senior officials, you're only ever one leader away from a plug being pulled or a shift in focus. For, and then, and the whole sort of thing can slightly come crashing down I think and I'm not saying that's going to be the case on this one I certainly think if we're talking about Britain as an example that if Liz Truss becomes Prime Minister the current Foreign Secretary then I think that there will be a robustness of opinion um, on Ukraine that will echo if not um, even um, extend beyond what Boris Johnson was advocating for Um, but what I mean is is that there will be other powers in Europe who are sending ministers to these kind of meetings or senior officials who may change tone and then regardless of how regular these institutions and these these sort of meetings are taking place um their hands will be will be tied you know that the about the amount of power that these officials have is sometimes hamstrung by uh by the decisions that are being made very very centrally um by by individuals or, or small groups of individuals um that's not a conspiratorial argument. It's just a fact that, that, you know, we call it sofa government or armchair government, you know, decisions made by small numbers of people. Um, but as I say, in terms of the, the momentum as things stand, I think it's been very interesting. And of course, this is, I'm getting part of this from what you've been reporting, Dom, about going to, 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 to so many interesting meetings um, in recent weeks, is that there is a, a, a solidity of opinion on this, that, that regardless of, of how much wobbling may be taking place or conversations about that uh, in in, in in the press um, that actually when you speak to the, the, the people who are making the current decisions that there is a, a unity of purpose that's still very much intact um, you listen to the remarks made by leaders now um, on on the issue that are still saying you know we must support Ukraine through the winter that the Ukrainians must have the final say on 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 what the shape of the war looks like and that we will continue to support them in that I mean this stuff is still very very um, strong and uh, and I think that we should take as and the Ukraine should take reassurance from that because as I say that if you are able to build these I suppose structures these regular meetings that that, that almost do potentially uh, supersede individual leaders at least in a day-to-day week-by-week basis um, then that will obviously be a very good thing because you're stopping sort of decisions having to be signed off by those at the top but what I'm talking about here is the sort of the grand strategy of, 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 of thinking long long term and of course there are always risks of when you've got de- de- democratic cycles uh, whereby uh, leaders who were once very robust can then be superseded by another person who is less robust as things start to start to bite and as people start to feel the consequences of decisions made by by the predecessors. But of course, this is really a fundamental debate here about the sort of perceived advantages and disadvantages of democracies and autocracies. That democracies supposedly are, are able to act sometimes less um, 
quickly, less swiftly, less efficiently than autocracies. But ultimately, they tend to get it right and they tend to get the decisions correct. Um, but it can be a bumpy road. It can be a slippy process. And uh, and some people, particularly, I would say, well, on both fringes of the political extremes, look to more autocratic regimes, whether they be on the left or the right. And they think, oh, this is how things are done, because you have that sort of strength of an individual leader. Um, and they're able to make decisions quickly and proactively and decisively. Um, and in a way that, may, that many people, as I say, find very, very attractive. But what they don't see is that the, the long term damage that's often wrought by the these autocracies um, decisions so the perhaps the way you could frame it around Ukraine is is that Putin was able to act decisively and swiftly to invade Ukraine but the point is that because he's an autocrat and all of the flaws that come with that he is ultimately doomed himself and his country for the long term so as I say they're all nuances and, and complexities to all this but as I say once you sort of start talking about these things as we have been today it broadens out into much wider I think issues uh, about the very nature of our political systems really so sorry if that's a bit of a, <laughs> a much broader brush discussion than the one that you intended Don but I think it's it's interesting and, and hopefully that sort of answers your your question. Yeah just quickly Francis on that um we mentioned at the beginning of this beginning of this part of the discussion the sort of Davos solution. Um, just just so listeners are aware, I used to work at the Eat World Economic Forum that uh, puts on the Davos conference every January. So, might be useful um, just sort of some sort of inside baseball of, on how this sort of thing works. Um, the forum, the World Economic Forum, have actually in this instance been incredibly. They, they, they've got a position. They were they, were, they are very pro Ukraine. Um, relations with the Russian government were, were frozen after the invasion. They weren't invited to Davos. Um, Davos, the, the, the way the forum would think of this is that the forum's frameworks and networks would give them a, a good opportunity to bring the sides together for for talks that would continue for a while. And then what they'd want is a big summit at the Davos conference in January. By by breaking off relations with the Russian government so early, they, that, 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 that might be in jeopardy. Um, and also, but more fundamentally, this couldn't happen while the two sides have, well, while the Ukrainians have, have no faith in, in whatever the Russians might say. Um, so in, in, in theory, if, if, as Francis, as you say, that there is some idea that the Russians might want to um, move towards a ceasefire in the next few months ahead of the winter, then actually Davos might be quite a good framework for the kind of talks that would be needed to end this. But until the Ukrainians have any faith, in what the Russian government would come out with, it just it just wouldn't happen. You know, you, you can you can you can see Zelensky just wouldn't wouldn't go, and the, the forum you know, couldn't couldn't have that. You couldn't have a Lavrov on one side and and nobody from the other side. Um, so I think it's I think it's relatively unlikely. Um, but it, it, it's th- it's these sorts of frameworks where diplomats will be start will start to think of start to ask the question where where do these talks if they're going to happen where would they take place? But I think we're a, a long long way away from that at this point and. But the final thing on that, I think, is that the forum are, are quite sensitive to international public um, uh, perception, and that it would be very, very difficult for for them to do this without without Zelensky. They wouldn't really be able to 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 move on this without without the backing and, and without the involvement of the Ukrainian government. So I, I do I do completely take your point that it does feel like there's lots of backroom chats, and it's 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 probably in a sort of shorthand way fair enough to call that the Davos method. But I thought that might be interesting for listeners to understand how it might actually work. Um, coming from somebody, I wasn't high up, just a grunt, I'm afraid, but somebody who saw some of the workings of the forum firsthand. 
If I could just come back on that, David, I think, yeah, I think that's an important clarification of what I was talking about. And I think there's just one other element to it that I would just want to unpack a bit, which is sometimes when I talk about sort of the Davos mentality or the Davos approach, there is a sort of another angle to that critique, I suppose, which is that I'm, I'm sort of thinking particularly about the remarks which were widely reported several months ago by Henry Kissinger, who, of course, was the sort of guest of honour of that, um, where he was sort of saying you know, that that that, uh, that the war needs to come to some sort of uh, end as, 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 as early as possible for all of the reasons that we've talked about in the past. And eff- effectively, there was a sort of analysis on, analysis on it that, that, that Ukraine w- would need to be sold out for the good of Europe. That was essentially one, one argument. Before. I'm not saying that's representative of what Davos thinks, but it seemed re- representative of, of, of how a lot of people were talking about at the conference. You know, to, And my worry, as I say, and I wrote a piece on this at the time, is that for all of the the talk about strength uh, towards Ukraine and long-term support generally for the cause of democracy and, if necessary, globalisation suffering as a consequence, there is still this huge mode of thinking which is very, very prominent, which is essentially that the way to operate in the world is for big powers to eventually sell out small ones on matters of sovereignty so that globalisation can continue unabated, that growth can continue unabated, and that... Uh, that, that actually this is in itself a good thing, that the more the world becomes bound together, then uh, it makes wars less likely. It means that uh, that you're more, uh, that in a sense, the way for Western values to be spread around the world is by op- opening your, your, your wallet. And so it's sort of money over morality. But I would say now, and I'd say I still think that despite everything that has happened, that is still the orthodox view um, represented by those who are, you know, uh, looking at this from a mar- largely economic growth related perspective, which, of course, the World Economic Forum would do. But my response to that and my retort to that at the time was that if you are thinking only in terms of money, and not morality, then you end up with Nord Stream 1s and 2s. You end up with you being reliant on Russian energy, Russian uh, oil and gas, and you end up being reliant on uh, rising powers like China in terms of manufacturing and everything else. And that emboldens them. It engorges them to effectively being able to act in the way that we are now currently seeing, whether that be in Ukraine or in Taiwan. So all of these things happen uh, have consequences. And as I say, I think there needs to be a real humbling of of an elite that has not been seen as a consequence of what has happened here and an orthodoxy about the supposed positive impacts of of, of globalization in terms of spreading western values being seriously seriously questioned because what we have seen in the case of both russia and china is investment big investment from from western countries and capitalism which was meant to sow this seed of western values and instead what has happened is it has as i say engorged them and has enabled them to act effectively with impunity or so they believed now i'm not saying in the case of russia that they have not um been severely uh, rebuked and and facing now severe consequences for their decision. I mean, if we believe the Yale paper that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, then the, the impact of this for Russia is absolutely and utterly devastating long term. So in that sense, of course, it has not been a success. But what worries me is let's say there were some sort of ceasefire agreed in the coming months or, or, or some sort of um, peace that Ukraine was unhappy with because they were pressurised into it. And then there was a resumption of uh, Russian energy feeding into Europe and a sort of a return to to normalcy that we will be back here 
again in the coming years and we will be saying why on earth didn't we learn the lessons back then that's my main fear when i talk about the sort of the davos mentality it's sort of this kind of idea of globalization um at the uh, desire and the, the sort of pursuit of growth above all and everything else well thank you very much francis for that um we're starting to run out of time, I think. Um, Dom and Francis, can I just ask you for your final thoughts? What should our listeners be thinking of uh, and looking to over the next few days? Well, a couple for me, very quickly, if I may. Um, firstly, we still haven't had an answer from Russia about what happened in Crimea last week and the attack on the Saki base. And I, I'm wondering if the, the more they don't say anything, the more, the more worrying that is, because it was, a, it was a devastating blow. There's still images of huge traffic jams to get across back into Russia um, from civilians there. So the war has come home to Russia. And they're still well. They've not updated their line that it was a couple of people smoking and hadn't made an accident, had an accident or, or what have you. And I just wonder if there is going to be some response, or actually, if there is, because there is quite frankly no no response they can come up with. Whether or not they're just going to sort of bite this one and, and move on. But I think if I think if we've if we've not heard anything by the end of this week, that that would be the case. Um, I'm, I'm still interested as to why Kiev hasn't been hit with rockets if, as, a, as some sort of lashing out by Russia. So I still, for the next few days, I think we should just keep an eye on on any response from Russia um, to Crimea. Uh, but, I, but I'm increasingly thinking that actually they've, they've been shown to not be able to do that. And my final thought would be, I mean, it's very interesting what Francis was just saying about how this issue, the, the, the war has thrown up the failings and the fault lines of, of, of recent sort of global capitalist thinking um and the and the, the sort of globalization debate i'll just be very interested this is not 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 for now and maybe not in public but i'd be really interested to to chat to francis and other people here at the telegraph and see if this war had happened um a few years ago uh, say 2015 would would the brexit vote have gone the way it had but hey that's just i'll just leave that one hanging yeah we're absolutely not tackling that one today don but thank you very much uh, francis would you like the final words Yes, yeah, definitely one for another episode, I think, because there's just so much to say on that question. Um, my final thought, actually, is a bit of an obscure one, for which I, I hope regular listeners will, will, will forgive me um, if it appears a bit too obtuse. But I was reading an interesting piece of analysis in the New York Review of Books over the weekend. I don't think it's the current issue. I think it's the one um, previously um, that I was catching up to. And it was a piece of analysis about a, a book written about wheat markets, which doesn't sound like the most scintillating subject, I must agree. Um, but essentially, it was talking about how wheat has changed the world in the past sort of couple of centuries that essentially you had for a long long time uh, bread being something that was actually you know fairly expensive to produce and then America was effectively harnessed to be able to do mass wheat production um, but of course in Europe what is the main and foremost uh, producer of wheat the Russian breadbasket, as it was then known, or Europe's breadbasket, as it's currently known, Ukraine. And it was essentially contextualizing the war and, uh, and in terms of thinking more about this food question than perhaps we have talked about on the podcast. Of course, we have addressed it at length, but I mean that it essentially was saying that if you're looking at Russian history from Catherine the Great onwards, then this value of Ukraine as a breadbasket and the leverage that that gives Russia over Europe and gave Russia over Europe was so enormous that actually it's one of the things that has been misunderstood about this conflict, that Putin is clearly seeing long term um, the, 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 the if, if he had seized the entirety of Ukraine or indeed that he still would hope to be able to have significant influence over Ukraine, that it would give him so much leverage as, as food issues perhaps get 
increasingly problematic with climate change and everything else, then uh, that the, 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 we, we, this is part of his broader strategy and, and that we need to be uh, proactive in, in acknowledging that and as to why, why perhaps he was thinking about this. And I say it was just sort of articulating that essentially the, 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 the war should be seen as a part of an imperialist conquest of an essential resource of which energy was one and food was another. And in that sense, to, to the point that I know Dom has talked about at length um, on the podcast, that Putin comparing himself to a sort of Peter the Great type figure, it would really, really play into that. So I'd recommend that people read it. It's quite a long read um, in the New York Review of Books um, on wheat. But I thought it was interesting in terms of thinking about this war a little bit differently. And indeed, I think something that it would be good to do a, a full-length episode on at some point is just taking a step back from perhaps the Western perspective on Ukraine, you know, as a sovereign nation, as a country that wants to become more part of, say, the European Union or NATO in the long term, versus how Russia sees Ukraine. Just have a whole episode of imagining how Putin sees Ukraine in the Kremlin. You know, does he see it purely as, uh, uh, in a sort of Machiavellian sense of like, this is just territory that I can take? Or does he see it more in this uh, this way of um, international brokerage? Or does he see it really genuinely, as he laid out in his essay back in July last year, as part of this sort of idea of greater Russia? Because I think that question of how it is perceived um, versus how it is seen in the West is one that is going to become into much sharper focus as we're talking about the long term direction of travel um, of this war. And uh, just one final remark on that, as was talked about last week. If there is going to be a serious counteroffensive or a very serious um, escalation of, of activities, it's going to have to be happening now or in the next few months. Because once winter sets in, we're going to have a very big deep freeze, I think, on this. And what does that mean? You know, does that benefit Russia or does it benefit Ukraine? You would say that probably Putin's strategic perspective on that is that it benefits him because Europe will starting to feel the heat from the energy crisis. So I think Ukraine are going to have to be very, very sensitive to that. And no doubt that is a foremost conversation taking place in Kiev as we speak. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.